Schools to believe that faith in a crucified criminal could save anyone from their sins if they even believed in sin as we understand it. And so in the last few verses of chapter 1, Paul urges saints to look around them in the church and see who is present. The church is not made up of uh, the upper crust of society, but rather the rejected and the despised of society. And so chapter 2 expands on this as he shows why we see the gospel as the wisdom of God and not foolishness. What makes us different? Well, not because we just happen to know better, we just happen to believe. Because it can't be something in us or God doesn't receive the glory. It's got to be that God makes the difference. He opens up our eyes. Otherwise, we're just like the world. Obviously, then, it isn't because we are smarter than the lost, but because the Lord has given us an understanding. So, it's going to go on to show that those who possess the Holy Spirit can now appraise spiritual truths of Scripture. Those who are unsaved and thus without the Spirit cannot. No wonder they think God's wisdom is foolish because they can't understand it. And by that I mean they don't get it. We, who have the Scriptures and the Spirit, therefore Paul's going to say, have the mind of Christ. And so we can understand the Bible is saying and it started at conversion, and it continues on. Now let me clarify this. We'll get into this towards the end of the chapter, or so, but there are many lost people who are decent theologians throughout church history. So Paul is not saying here in chapter 2 that if you're lost, you see the Bible as a lot of gibberish. You don't get it. That's not what he's saying there. They can grasp the meaning of words and concepts and many do. And many have thought through these things to some degree. But they are not regenerate. They don't have the spirit. They're not spiritual people. And so they don't get it. They don't see the glory of Christ. They don't understand their sinfulness and their need to a point where they uh, believe and trust in the Lord. If they have the word, they Uh, Even if they understand the word, they don't trust in it in a saving way. And so we see that this passage is, we will see that this passage does not say that all lost people, when they read their Bible, just throw up their hands, I don't know what's going on. You can't understand it and look at it that way. And we'll get into that more uh, in a week as well. So we have seen that in these days, Clever philosophy was what people liked, as it was considered wise, and the Corinthian saints had to get uh, that kind of thinking purged from their minds, and they grew up in that culture, where someone to stand up and, through the eloquence and and, and the intellectual uh, way of speaking, just impress people, that's what they thought good, not good preaching, but oration was. Another way of saying this is that people wanted to have their ears tickled. And, and it, 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 you got to get, if you were here in chapter 1, you were, people were following Paul and Apollos and Peter. They, they had their own person that they, that they followed, which was, again, if you think about Greek culture, you have Aristotle or Plato, you know, who's pamper you in? That, that's just the mindset that they had. And so they wanted to have their ears tickled, whatever makes them feel good. Whatever they are attracted to, that's what they wanted to hear. 
And the problem is that you have you begin to not really want to hear what God has to say. You want to hear your favorite speaker. And so we know that in some cases, nothing has changed even in our day. It's how human history has always been. Then they go to church, from church to church, looking for the right pastor or the right programs, the right activities, the right music, which means they're not looking for the word of God to believe, but they are looking for the word of man to consider. Because I'm going to a church because I want to hear what God has to say. I want to go to hear what I want to uh, believe, what I want to hear. So they are looking for the word of God, not for the word of God to believe, but the word of man, whether it be that man or themselves, to consider. Anyone who claims the, the right to consider God's word I would say is probably not a believer, one who's messed up, sure, weak in the faith, at best. Don't consider what God has to say, you believe what God has to say. When I say consider, I mean you decide whether you will believe it or not. So here Paul speaks two things. His target was to preach exactly what God has revealed to him and not manfully, for reasons that we've seen in chapter 1. And to hit that target, he preached the cross, which he knew would either offend them or save them. And so if they believed, it would have to be seen as God's work and real. And it, it was not, he therefore would know that it wasn't his personality and cleverness of speech that produced the problem. Because he preached something that the natural man is offended by. Thinks it's foolish. So if someone all of a sudden believes it, you have to say all glory to God. <laughs> I'm saying something that they don't want to hear. God had to have changed their mind. First Baptists have historically been known for upholding the word of God as the most important thing that we can know, and therefore the rule of life. Uh, many have fallen away from that. But I think Paul, we could say, believed the same thing. So Paul didn't come with traditions or a system that he comes preaching the gospel. While initially, this might have been that he preached pretty much the, about the cross of Christ, the actual we consider the gospel. I don't think he's saying that he didn't preach the whole counsel of God. I don't think that Paul is telling us as pastors that when you preach, you want to stand up and only preach about the cross of Christ, or the actual good news of Christ That certainly permeates everything. But the Bible presents that message in a lot of different ways. It has a lot of different subjects. So, obviously, Paul preached the whole counsel of God. But especially when it came to the law, they didn't need to hear about all that. They needed to hear about Christ. So, he's saying he preached the word and not his philosophy or cleverness in order to impress them. Because those things don't save. So we see by verse 5, he says that the reason he is careful to do this is because this is the only foundation for faith, God's word. So it says that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Paul was not interested in gaining a following. He was interested in seeing people converted and to follow Christ. Have you ever noticed how the world, no doubt, by the craftiness of Satan is trying to undermine this. Faith today, the concept of faith, is 
merely whatever you believe enough to help you on your way. We are free to create our own reality. If you'll be living a dream world today, if it helps you, if it helps you cope, it makes you happy, then that's good for you. If your faith helps you get through life, then that's good for you. Well, that's nebulous faith. Even Christians can get caught up in this. So they say, well, this is how I choose to look at this passage. Well, no, it's not your, it's not man's word to consider. It's God's word to believe. This is what God says. You don't choose to believe. Uh, make it be whatever you want it to be. So, just uh, to put this in a uh, way, a quote here, you might say, this is helpful. Biblical faith is to believe the revelation of God and act accordingly, not to base your life on whatever you choose to. So faith is never nebulous. Faith is never fuzzy, out of focus, cloudy, uh, and kind of molded to whatever we want it to be. Faith is never a shot in the dark. It is. I, it, faith is never, I just hope things will work. No, faith is to believe the revelation from God and to act accordingly. That's why faith without works is dead. If you say, I believe God, but I don't live like I believe God, then you really don't believe God, right? So it's never nebulous in the Bible, only in false religion and mysticism and things like that. Anytime people say that you have your faith, I have mine, they have no idea what they're talking about. Base your life on God's word, and you will experience his power. Base it on your own whimsical foolishness or somebody else's foolishness, and you'll never know. So, if all this is true, and I believe with all my heart it is, my job, besides obeying the word of God, is to determine. So, my job is to tell you what God says, not to tell you what I think you might want to hear, because only what God says matters. Your job, besides obeying the word, is to determine if I'm telling you what God has truly said, regardless of how you take it, whether you like to hear it or not, is what I'm saying true, am I being faithful to God's word, and if it is, to accept it, to rejoice in it, and to obey it. And that's my, certainly my job as well. If I'm, if what I'm saying is to try to keep as many people possible, that I have failed, and it's time to move on, and have to be moved on. So Paul has just shown how human wisdom is constructed to save faith, because it rests in man's wisdom and not in the cross of Christ, not in God's revelation. So God devised a way to save so that one must reject human wisdom and believe what by nature we would not believe. And the wisdom of the cross is that it points right at our pride and our desire to boast in ourselves and what we can do and tells us, no, that's exactly the problem. You are not a good person. You are not capable of doing anything to please God. You must fall on your face before the work, the finished work of Christ if you will be saved. And the world doesn't want to hear that. A lot the natural man rejects that. Why is it that so many insist that man's will must be free so that he must have the last word to accept or reject what God says? Well, the natural man can only reject God's will because our will is in bondage to our sin. 
So the one who has been regenerated and converted sees the wisdom of the cross because now on this side of the cross, and having been regenerated, we see how sinful we are. We see how undone we are. Like Isaiah, when we see the glory of God, woe am I, for I am undone. Did Isaiah did not say, well, Lord, having seen your glory, what can I do so that I can attain that? No, the rich young ruler, at least at that point when he met Jesus, was not converted. He is up to Jesus. Lord, what must I do to be saved? Isaiah said, oh, I'm undone. And the Lord sent that fire from the altar, that coal from the altar, and touched him. He purified Isaiah. See the difference there. We can do nothing to please God, nor can we ever pay the debt of sin. We were born with so we need a perfect substitute. Now on the flip side, think of all the clever ways Roman Catholicism and other cults have devised systems in which people can attain salvation by things they can do. Complete opposite of what Paul is saying here. Think of the humanists that say man can save himself through his own wisdom, by science and environmentalism or whatever, that man, the answer to all of our problems is in man. This is why if one doesn't have a sound understanding of God's person, what he is all about, you'll struggle with the rest of the Bible. And you're going to struggle with the world in which you live. You're going to struggle with life if you don't understand it. You reject the life giver. So Paul says in verse 1 and 2, I was careful to only speak what you needed to hear in order to be saved and not impress you with how much I know. And Paul knew a lot. Paul was a highly educated person. Uh, you weren't going to out-argue him in one sense. You know, he would go to the Jewish synagogue where he would debate uh, the, uh, the, the most learned of the Jews. But he did want to create followers of Paul, but of Christ. But because he chose that route, he accomplished two things. Because he chose to preach the offending gospel message and not be clever and not try to wow them with how much he knew, two things resulted from that. He established a church full of people who were actually converted because he preached the gospel. But he also left the door open for people to be more impressed with someone else who come along and did speak better than Paul. Which is, when we get to 2 Corinthians, that's what the entire book is about, him defending his apostleship by these super apostles who said, Paul can't even put two words together. He's ineloquent. He's, he's a simpleton. You know, and, and people were beginning to fall for it because that's the culture that they lived in. So it opens up the door, but that's okay. You know, I, I'm gonna, I gotta preach the truth and let the chips fall where they will. Let God do what he wants to. Because even if I was capable of speaking in a way that drew people to me, like I was a virgin or something like that, that's not doing me any good. And I'm not saying to downcast anything about person. But I don't want you to be a follower to me. So Paul goes on to say in verses 3 and 4 that he was careful to preach Christ alone. He just so happened to do so in a weak, fearful way because he was, in some sense, a timid, awkward speaker. And the fact that some believed could only be attributed to the power of God. 
I, verse 2 says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you, in, so I did that in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. So he was not a great orator, and he didn't try to uh, over. He didn't feel like he was going to fail if he wasn't. He didn't work on his delivery so much as what he was delivering. Now I think Paul was a bold Christian to do what he did. Uh, you know. He, he, he was bold to the Lord. He trusted the Lord. He obeyed the Lord. So he wasn't afraid. But when he says, I was fearful and timid, I think because he was not a great speaker. And, and again, there's other reasons, especially when you get into Second Corinthians, you see that he was not all that eloquent. You know, he was a, a learned man, but he did not have a great delivery. But that doesn't mean he wasn't bold. When he says fear, you know, I don't think he meant it like that. Just didn't stand up in front of a group of lost men and preach a Paul's message. You know, I wonder how the best preachers would do if they weren't, instead of standing in front of their beloved congregation, they were in downtown Mecca preaching. Maybe some who do a very good job in their comfortable churches maybe would see what Paul's talking about here. It's not easy to stand up in front of people who maybe are going to kill you or beat you when you got done. Uh, and, and speak eloquently, you know. So again, you got to kind of think about what it, where he is, where he's coming from. In other words, he is specifically pointing out that he did not present a system of things for them to do. He simply told them of their need of salvation and how Christ is the only way, and he did so in such a way that would not really impress them all that much, because he wasn't as good a speaker as many were. But, he, but yet that is how God saves, that he's proclaiming the gospel, not necessarily how well he do it. So it says if he did not preach implausible words, that he was speaking in implausible, implausible words. In other words, that, that word there in the Greek, I think it's what the word we get pith, like a pithy thing from. Uh, it, you know, it's translated various ways. Uh, DSB has plausible, so he, he's he wasn't speaking in a way that to them made any sense. The uh, KJV has uh, enticing. He didn't speak with an enticing word. But the idea of he didn't think, okay, what is going to entice or please or attract lost people? A lot of the translations have used the word persuade, persuasive speech. That's a real literal uh, uh, translation. It wasn't his job to persuade them. The Holy Spirit does the persuading. I proclaim truth, Paul says, and then let's see what the Holy Spirit is going to do. That's <clears throat> kind of the idea here. And so the Corinthians now look upon Paul somewhat like a teenager views his parents. Paul is not wise to kind of question, you know, mom and dad really did something. You don't get it. That's how it goes. He lacks the charm and the charisma that makes his spiritual children proud of him. And thus they have begun to listen to others who have a higher level of esteem, especially maybe with their peers who speak better. They begin to lose a little respect for the one God used to save them. And Paul's saying, you know, wait just a minute. Uh, think about this thing for a moment. 
Paul seeks to correct their wayward thinking by reminding them that he's the same Paul who came to them at the beginning, preaching the gospel, just the gospel, in a simplistic, timid way. And it was through that that the Corinthians, who were once pagans, became saints. And so Paul now reminds them of his message and manner which he first came to them that resulted in their salvation and says, you know, uh, what's going on here? <coughs> He's, in a sense, boasting. I'm using this in the biblical sense. Um, where, and he does this a lot in Second Corinthians, where he's got to defend himself. By, in a sense, putting forth his credentials. So not boasting in a bad way, but in, in the way that he had to do this. He's saying, you're in danger of leaving the simplicity of the word and following out the philosophies of man. But think about, what it is, what is it that saves you? Was it the philosophy of man or the simple gospel preaching? That reminds us of where a few weeks ago on the Resurrection Sunday when we were in Matthew 28 and the, uh, how these women feared, but as they feared, God, Jesus says, go and tell the disciples, you've got a message. <clears throat> so go and, and deliver the message and don't let fear disrupt that. I, I have always thought that Paul was kind of a Pitbull evangelist. Uh, but I, know, I don't think probably that's the case. Again, I, I think the bold man willing to die for the Lord, but I don't think he just walked into a room or to a town and just started, you know, eloquently speaking and, you know, put on this air of being an amazing speaker. He, he was scared. In fact, when he, it Acts tells us when he went into Corinth, that the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So again, he was timid, and there might be times where he thinks, you know, I, I'm just, should I leave? And here, the Lord says, Don't be afraid. I've got people here that need to hear the gospel. Be bad at so just like with the women there in Matthew 28, the Lord's words of assurance enable them to press on by fear. So are we not seeing why it is the gospel preaching that saves the built churches? And we don't need to come up with things the lost are attracted to build the church. Again, it's, it's, it's through the foolishness of preaching, not activities and music and emotional altar calls that convert sinners. And it's not that those things are always wrong in and of themselves, but we never forget that it is the Word of God that does the conversion. And those things must be subservient to that. So Paul's actions in Corinth are purposeful. They're not accidental or haphazardous, what they say here. It was not that Paul was an ignorant, uneducated man, nor was it that Paul only knew about Christ and Christ crucified in verse 2. He only knew the simple gospel. He obviously knew the Old Testament uh, better than any of us do. But he determined that all the uh, preach while ministering in Corinth or anywhere else. He chose to limit his preaching to those truths which would save men from their sins and transfer them into the kingdom of light out of the kingdom of darkness even though many would be unimpressed by his knowledge and speech, uh, Paul determined to only preach on those things that were going to do them any good. 
right? So I'm not here trying to impress you. I want to preach what will help you, what will help me. And that's what I want to do with Paul, telling what did itself. <clears throat> and so the world sees, sees such a display as foolish and weak, but that is why God chose to save through that very thing. That's what we saw in chapter 1. Weak people can't help but display someone else's strength. That's the whole point. This is why one can live effectively for Christ in his humility and weakness. See about John the Baptist. He kept pointing people to the Messiah. He did not gain a following through cleverness and through his ability. He had one message. And let's be clear that our first duty is not to point lost people to Jesus' teachings to Jesus as an example. And a lot of people absolutely don't get this. They, I am not here to impress you by telling you how wonderful Jesus is and to get you to, uh, firstly, to follow his example or to obey his teaching. Think about it. We point them to their need of a Savior. We don't want to use Christ so that someone can deny Christ. The lost person is not need, does not need to obey the Beatitudes or the Matthew 5 or Jesus' teaching. They need to repent of their sins and trust in Jesus Christ and Him crucified. They don't need an, they don't need to see Christ as an example. They need to see Christ as a Savior. We see Christ as an example now. But it wasn't until we first Realize, I can't follow Jesus' example. That's the whole problem. To preach the words of Christ without the cross of Christ will produce self-righteous moral hypocrites. That's, you got to be careful that with your own children. You're responsible. you got to teach them how to behave, but your first duty is to teach them that they're sinners in need of a Savior. You know, raising your children so that they're moral is all well and good, but it's a damning if you don't first teach them also about the gospel, the need of Savior. That's why so many churches today think a lot about the Beatitudes, uh, Christ's good work, the, the things he said that are inspirational and all that kind of stuff, but they don't like to say a lot about the cross, the wrath of God, the salvation. So in other words, preaching Christ is not to be done in a way to get what we want. It is to display the glory of Christ and our need of Him. So it, the gospel means that we must die to ourselves. As Paul had certainly clearly done, like in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul understood he, without the power of the Holy Spirit, had nothing to offer. The cross means dying. Not a means to get more stuff. The means to get Christ. Again, all this shows why only God's power can cause us to believe. Because some of the Christians are called suffering to be despised. So watch out for preachers who never mention these things, for whom the cross is a mere token symbol, for whom the exceeding simpleness of our hearts are scarcely ever mentioned, who use power and wisdom and fame and luxury to beckon self-centered middle-class Americans to consider Becoming a Christian for what you can get. Or out of pride and self-sufficiency, you know, the cost of the call to deny yourself 
die daily to follow Christ and Lord and Savior. But people like Joe Osteen think that we have a to sell Christ to the lost, to make him and following him look attractive as the answer to all their problems, so that they're going to jump him on board. No, that's not, that, that just repudiates 1 Corinthians 1 that says the gospel is offensive. If you're preaching something that the world doesn't find offensive, you're doing something wrong. No, that just means if you're preaching in a way that is offensive, that's a whole different problem. But the gospel message is offensive, and that's what should offend. I grew up in a system that tended to ignore our weaknesses and wanted everyone to have their lives in order. There was very little, you know, everybody came to church and acted like good hypocrites a lot of times that we're doing good, and you really never realized that people's lives were falling apart until like, they did fall apart because everybody was trying to, didn't want to look like they were doing badly. And you could kind of understand the, the attraction to that. But it should be a goal that to to have our lives in, in, in proper order and following Christ, to have good, strong families and marriages. That's a goal, but it doesn't always happen. And sometimes it, the Lord's going to bring us low. We're all at some point going to show that we are weak and fearful and trembling like Paul here. In one way or another, you might think you have it all together. You might look at church like you have it all together. But we all know including myself, that you struggle, you've got your problems and your weaknesses as well. I'm going somewhere with this, let me It's that today the tendency is to glory in our faults to make no attempt to bring our lives into the control of Christ. You know, a preacher gets up and says, hey, this is what the Lord expects us to do, and, and, and you say, oh, you're being legalistic. You know, the Lord just loves me any way I am. Let's say you've kind of gone the other way. But just because Hide it better than others, we all know where we're coming from. But my point is that the Lord uses our struggles to prepare us to seek to do His will if we are faithful. So it's okay sometimes to be placed in a low place for the Lord to bring you, to bring you down, to humble you. And, and even sometimes when it's a matter of sin, sometimes you do something wrong and it's going to cause a problem in your life. Okay, what are you going to do with that? The Lord brings us to low places and, and we cannot think that, well, all my testimony is ruined. I can't serve the Lord. So, in our weakness is when the Lord gives us the ability to reach people that perhaps we wouldn't have before. So, we don't want to obviously fall into sin, but when the Lord brings us low in some way, when you lose your job, when all of a sudden you don't have as much money as everybody else, or you're weak and don't, don't just automatically think that well, all is lost. No. You're, maybe the Lord's free you to a point where you can actually do something for Him. I would love to watch Paul go to the marketplace and start to stutter and head with whatever weaknesses he had and yet to watch people be converted in spite of him. The Lord wants us to give our lives to Him to obey His word, to love Him to have a burden for his glory for others and to see what he'll do with that despite your lack of gift or power or whatever it is you think you need. 
need to be concerned with how much of God's power is seen in my worst condition. Not just when I look like I've got it all together. And I think there's an example here that Paul, this is, you know, Paul later on, again, in 2 Corinthians. And 2 Corinthians is a great book. Can't wait to but Paul felt that he could not be an effective witness because of whatever problems that he had, whether it was physical, he said, Lord, I need you to get rid of this thing because it's hindering the ministry. First, I pleaded about the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, wait, you're, you've got this whole thing backwards. My grace is sufficient. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. He's not saying again the, the word boast doesn't mean that I'm now going to walk around and strut the fact that I've got this problem or I don't do well or whatever it might be. Um, but I will gladly therefore rejoice even in the bad things that I consider bad because Christ is working through me. Sometimes we need to see weakness. Sometimes you need to see past the weakness. You need to see that, you know, he's struggling. He, he doesn't have it all together. And I know, and, and it, it, it's very hard for me to be vulnerable. But it's there. And we need that because it makes us dependent upon the Lord. And it makes us realize that I can't do this without him, without the word in my mind. So he knew, and we're just not done here, but when he knew, when he walked into a city to evangelize it, it wasn't by having a well-organized, well-financed ministry where he could rent out the local coliseum. And I remember in the 70s, I don't know if any of you ever heard of Freddie Gage. Uh, he rented, we rented out the, the uh, local football field and uh, had a crusade there. Because people flocked in. You know, this was kind of the, the whole thing that the ministry that he was involved in. We don't have to have the best music, the best speakers, he preached the best he could and knew that he would be mostly rejected, that he would often be beat for his effort, but he knew that it was in those weaknesses where it looked like he wasn't doing anything that the Lord was actually going to do the work. And so the encouragement here is that if you are struggling a little, keep on trusting and serving and see what God will do. Don't worry about the fact that life isn't going the way you want it to be. That your marriage isn't and then everybody knows or whatever the situation is you work on those things but don't think that you can't serve the Lord apart from that but if we assume outward failure is failure instead of victory Paul carried the cross of Christ in the scars of his body and yet he excels to God not by comfort but by weakness so in 2 Corinthians 4 but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the special power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carried in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in us. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in your mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but 
life to you. Paul was, was suffering greatly for what he was doing, but look, a church was being formed. And so, the, the problems that the Lord sent his way were never to crush them. The Lord always gives us the strength necessary to deal with the situation. But Paul was faithful. He was serving the Lord in them. He didn't just use them as an excuse to not do anything. I think 300 years of the American experiment of not suffering from Christ has caused us to forget that we don't talk and impress people into getting saved because that's untheological. You can't talk anybody into getting saved. The Holy Spirit has We exalt the cross of Christ, not the Sermon on the Mount. We don't first preach to people that they should behave but that they need to be saved. If you don't you know anything about Billy Sunday, who ministry was around the turn of the last century, he, his whole ministry was basically telling people to, 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 to shape up, telling men to be men, to, to, to quit drinking, to quit cussing. To, you know, he, he, he went around trying to get people to be moral as if that was Christianity. But it wasn't about preaching the cross, it was about, it was legalism. And, and that's not doing anything. We don't need if we want to be moral people, then it won't happen apart from the gospel first. We're really scared for persecution, believing that if we can't pray in schools, get kicked out of the public arena, that we can't reach the law. Evidently, no one's being saved in China, because they're underground for the most part, and yet the Lord is doing probably more over there than he's doing over here. So it is not mushing of power and wisdom for but how can I display his wisdom? We aren't to draw people's attention to our church, to our lives, but to their need of Christ. That's why you have to be careful about telling people what Jesus did to you or what Jesus does to you. And again, stuff in their church that can't be appropriate at certain times. That's not the gospel. How Jesus cleaned up your life after you got saved is all well and good, but the lost person didn't hear about you don't need people to follow Jesus. I hope you understand the frustration. We have to look at our the weaknesses and suffering differently than we do, so we preach like Paul. When I am weak, then I am strong. Then I am So as we finish here in verse 5, we see that Paul is just building on chapter 1. Their very existence as a church shows that the power of God is in the foolishness of preaching the gospel, not in the power of a magnificent oration. And as he, as he continues in this chapter, the sovereignty of God and salvation is further taught as the necessity of God to work in us to believe. In other words, not only does the sovereignty of God it bring us into salvation, but we need that power of God to help us understand the word of God that we might grow in the Lord. We don't we don't all of a sudden become self sufficient when we get saved. Our faith rests in the power of God, not in being convinced. And one of the problems with Arminianism is that it rests on the idea that all men have the ability to be convinced. We believe but Paul, as we saw there in verse uh, four, I didn't come preaching plausible words, words that would convince you. 
because you can't convince a sinner to quit sinning. A self-sufficient person to quit being self-sufficient. So I hope maybe some who are supposed to be timid or shy might be encouraged to be bold for Christ. That no matter how much you stumble over your word, if you just preach the truth, just tell people the truth, God can bless it, God can make it. Any questions?